Hey, everybody. Are you with me when I say life can be amazing at times, but it can also be extremely challenging? I know. I've been there myself, learned some valuable life lessons along the way, and now I'm here to help you. It's no coincidence you found your way to the Relevate podcast. I'm your host, Rena Olson, a self-proclaimed inspirer of others. Together, we're going to dive deep into raw and honest conversations with real people. My hope is that through these stories, you too will be inspired and ready to tackle whatever's holding you back or breaking your heart. Then you'll be free to live a life of purpose and true fulfillment. I promise it's possible. Let's Relevate. Hey friends, I am so glad you've joined me for this episode of the Relevate Podcast. We are diving deep to talk about a deeply troubling scourge in the U.S., drug overdose deaths, which are occurring at epidemic rates. My guest on this episode, Carolyn Bradfield, is a brilliant entrepreneur and businesswoman. She has also felt the heartbreak of losing a loved one by overdose. And in the midst of her grief, Carolyn is finding a way to move her pain into purpose. She is here today to share her and Laura's story. Carolyn Bradfield, welcome to the Relevate Podcast. Well, thank you, Rena. I appreciate you having me as a guest. Well, super cool to be here in this space with you. I just thank you for traveling over here and being willing to share your story. I think it's um, it's sad, but it's hopeful, and how you're using your grief and turning it into action. I just admire you so much for Thank taking that path. Thank you. I appreciate that. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I grew up in a mill town down uh, about 45 minutes south of the Atlanta airport, LaGrange, Georgia. Yeah. Uh, sleepy little town. Uh, back then, we had one hamburger joint, a movie theater, and it was a dry county. So um, <laughs> if anybody wanted to drink anything, it was a 40-mile round trip. Wow. Uh, Lester Maddox uh, was mad at our county uh, because we didn't vote for him for governor. So he stopped Interstate 85 and noon and then started it back up in Alabama. No. And we Serious? That's absolutely true. <laughs> and so we didn't even have an interstate coming through there for you know quite a while until he left office. That's funny. What was kind of on your heart early on? Well, I started my business career. Well, I started my career as a school teacher. It was the best job I ever had. Oh, so nice. I taught English to middle school kids for five years. Um, my take-home pay was $400 a month, so I didn't like being poor. I went back to school um, to get a business degree. And then got lucky enough to be hired on by General Electric Information Services. Um, I was an email specialist before email was commercially available to the marketplace. And so from that, I recognized that I didn't want to be in a very large corporation. So I had a, a next kind of foray into the voice messaging service business. And then in 1991, right outside my hometown, um, which was um, kind of a mill village, um, the primary mill had been bought by Fruit of the Loom Farley Industries, so all these mill workers were getting ready to lose their job. Mm-hmm. And I was approached along with another person by the patriarch of West Point, Georgia, to put a conference calling business down in West Point so he could take these unemployed mill workers and put them back to work. So we founded a company called Intercall down there, grew it substantially. Uh, Today, it's owned by 
uh, the West Corporation. It's called Entrado, but we built it to over a billion dollars in revenue. Word. And then past that, um, I stayed with them for four years. Um, after that, I had a series of businesses that I founded, started, and grew. So mm-hmm. being an entrepreneur has always been in my heart. And I was fortunate uh, to find a business that I felt was relatively easy. And so I was able to double purpose making money with employing women, um, hiring young people during the downturn and the recession. By, uh, teaching them an easy skill set and then giving them a job. So that's been kind of the story of the career. That's very cool. So when did the kids come along and the husband? So I got married young. I was 23 years old. I had my son eight years later. And then two years after that, I had my daughter. So I was 31 when I had my first first kid. Young. Young. Very young. <laughs> well, young enough. And then were you living in this area at that time? Um, I was living in Dallas, Texas when I had my son Ross. And then my husband got transferred to Roswell to Atlanta. And then I had Laura here at Northside okay. in Atlanta. So we raised them here, not not in Texas. I got you. So let's switch the conversation to your beautiful daughter, Laura. Sure. And tell me, tell me a little bit about her. Well, so Laura was just like any other you know, really cool kid growing up. She was a Brownie Scout. We lived in a great neighborhood. Everybody knew each other. So it was back in the time you could send your kids out to play and um, not worry that then something bad was going to happen. She was went to Roswell North Elementary. It was a good school kid. Started playing soccer in elementary school. Took to it um, and did a lot of travel soccer um, during that time. So she was very athletic, had a lot of friends, a lot of um, fun activities. And then uh, a lot of things changed for her by the time that um, she entered high school. So she had changed her sport. She wasn't playing soccer. She was now rowing on crew with the AJRA. Her friend base changed. I actually remarried. I divorced my first husband and remarried the year that she entered high school. So she was getting used to a new stepfather. She was in a new school. I actually moved into Brookfield um, Country Club neighborhood, so we changed our neighborhood, and she had a massive amount of changes um, during that year, which she didn't process very well. So unlike uh, a lot of kids, she started experimenting with pot, and that cascaded into cocaine and a range of other drugs. So by the time she turned 15 years old, um, we had a big smoking hot problem that I was completely not educated to understand and prepared to deal with. So we tried therapeutic interventions, we tried counseling, but it got to the point where she would go missing and do very dangerous things. So on the advice and uh, help of an educational consultant, I had her enter uh, a wilderness therapy program in uh, Clayton, Georgia, and then followed that up with a therapeutic boarding school where she stayed uh, for the next year and a half and graduated actually from high school there. So, and she was able to stabilize. Oh yeah, I mean, she had wilderness therapy was definitely a stabilizing effect. I mean, she made you know 
huge turn. I guess when you're in January and you're in, you know, below zero temperatures and you're in the woods for 45 days, um, it kind of gives you a wake-up call. And in the therapeutic boarding school, because it was very isolated and kind of sequestered, you know, it was difficult to get into trouble because you were pretty monitored. So I would say that she was stabilized. Um, but um, what I did not know at the time is that she had already gone down the path of the disease of addiction. That was really not diagnosed or dealt with. And so um, when she had the opportunity to graduate, start school, the addiction was always there, never treated, and she didn't understand the disease. So she very quickly um, started using drugs in college, um, methamphetamine, uh, blew out, and that um, engendered a whole kind of journey of other treatment that lasted, you know, for another 10 to 11 years um, during that process. God love you. I mean, I just... My heart goes out to the parents for what they have to go through. I mean, it is, I know it is a lonely and brutal road. Well, it is. And, you know, I've worked with a lot of parents um, subsequent to all of this. And the emotions that parents feel are pretty wide ranging. Um, They feel shame because the kids of their parents, of the other people that they know are not going through the same thing um, their families likely don't understand Um, you're grieving what you thought your child would be doing at that point in time dating learning to drive a car all the going to the prom all the things that you're not going to get to do Um, you have an intense amount of fear when they're in a compromised situation so if they go missing or um, you don't you can't kind of put your hands on them then there's that fear of, you know, where are they and what's going to happen to them. So parents that are living with a child that's addicted, um, it is a akin to being in the Gulf War and under fire all the time. So sure um, that's how we, f- we felt. And um, certainly other parents that I've worked with are also experiencing the same thing. Did you have moments or periods of time where you were hopeful that she was coming out of it? Well, when she was in therapeutic boarding school, I had no idea. You know, she looked great, and um, so naively, I thought, "Oh well, we've got a we got a cure here, right? We're good." And then after um, she left um, college, and I sought the advice of Dr. Bob Margolis here in Roswell, friend of mine. Um, he gave me some advice about her addiction, things that I had not yet heard from the professionals at the school. And so I committed her to the Karen Foundation up in Pennsylvania, where we got a really good um, baseline education and understanding of the disease. And when she was done with that program, she went over to Boulder, Colorado, to a really nice program called AIM House, which was transitional living mm-hmm. for um, young adults in recovery. And so I would say from the age of 18 to 21, um, she was on a really good um, pathway. Mm -hmm. She was um, enrolled in college. Um, She was in AIM House. She was receiving really good therapeutic support. I had a business with an office right out there. And so um, she actually worked part-time for the business. She had a number of jobs, but um, one of the jobs she had was just to do marketing research for us. So oh, nice. we had a really good understanding of how she was doing, and that was a period, long period of time where I was pretty hopeful about 
what might happen with her. And then, and then, as happens with a lot of people, um, Laura really never galvanized her efforts around a good recovery program. She was sober, but I don't know that um, I really understood really what it takes to be in recovery. And so she looked good, but she wasn't doing the work that it takes to sustain health and wellness. And so um, she turned 21, which means that she could get into a bar legally. So she started drinking, and then that cascaded into other things. Um, I came out uh, to visit. I saw very clearly that she was in trouble. So I used the service of Heather Hayes, who's a mm-hmm. interventionist oh, yeah. here, and she f- was on her way back from another assignment, stopped off in Denver, and um, we got Laura back home. Um, within 24 hours, I had her apartment packed up, and she was back in Atlanta. And so after coming back to Atlanta, we had a series of um, being on the hamster wheel, which is I'm, um, I'm re- I look like I'm in recovery, then I relapse. Then I go to rehab, and I look like I'm in recovery, then I relapse, and I go to rehab. So she's been in, you name a program in Atlanta, she's been there, Mar. Ridgeview, Peachford, um, several in North Carolina. So we never really found a situation, despite a lot of treatment, where Laura could sustain recovery mm-hmm. and, um, and you know, have a wellness strategy that worked for her. And so the addiction eventually took her life. Right. So what happened is um, Peachford um, had prescribed Suboxone for her, and she had been on Suboxone for years and years. Now, a lot of people think that's a great maintenance drug, but the downside consequence is that you can abuse it, and certainly she was um, in and out and and abusing that drug as well. Um, So she had some other periods of sobriety. It's not like we had extended um, drug use. There were several years where she was not using but she made the decision when she turned 29 to detox off of Suboxone. She entered Ridgeview for a two-week detox program. And the unintended downside consequence is it created a serious amount of emotional, emotional dysregulation that she couldn't manage. Um, and she had other things going on in her life that weren't going right for her. She had been a dog groomer. Um, she had a very high-pressure job with a brand-new center that had opened on Mansell Road. She lost that job. Um, they were requiring her to do upward of 16 dogs a day, which is wow. impossible for any dog groomer. She had a long-term boyfriend, pretty positive guy that they broke up. So we had you know, those life events between jobs, break up with a boyfriend, the emotional dysregulation of being off of Suboxone, And then she made the mistake of connecting with a pretty bad crowd out in Canton um, that were, they were using meth and other things. I'm not really sure what all she was using, but um, so she made the decision to drive out to Colorado with one of these guys. I get a phone call out there and she tells me, hey, mom, I'm pregnant. I'm coming back to Georgia. So she comes back with this guy. I have the conversation with her that goes, look, I respect your right as an adult to make any decision that you want to make as long as you respect my right as an adult to make my decisions. And so it's not my decision to 
raise your child, support you financially, or provide a home for you and, and the guy. Um, so a few... Do you think that was her expect, expectation coming back? Um, I don't know what it was, but I was really clear about what my... Expect, I mean, she, she obviously wanted to be close to home, and I had provided her housing, you know, so I would assume maybe that she would expect that. But I made it really clear that, you know, he was not welcome. Um, and so uh, she never... She, you could tell that she never really plan to have that baby she smoked she was doing things that she shouldn't have she clearly wasn't caring for herself and so a week or so later after she came back she had a miscarriage um which was the week before she died so again more emotional dysregulation and so the night um that she overdosed um i came back from somewhere saw her truck parked in front of the house some guy was in it never met the guy she'd broken up with her boyfriend never met this guy so she texts me she says hey mom um, i'm outside i'm safe i'm with a friend so i call her and i said okay what's up i met this guy i'm out there with him i'm gonna take him back to his car um, would you like to come meet him? And I was like, no, it's 11 o'clock. Why don't you just take him back to his car, come on back, and we can talk in the morning. So <clears throat> she takes him all the way from Roswell into Woodstock, and this is now about 1.30 in the morning. They go inside the racetrack, come out. Um, uh, she uh, ingested some level of methamphetamine, and it hijacked her heart, sent it into AFib. Unfortunately, the guy that she was with was too stoned on whatever to call in time. And so although the paramedics were called, um, she had been without oxygen for too long. They revived her. Um, I got a knock on the door at 4.30 in the morning from the Roswell police, and um, we go out to... Cherokee, North Fulton, Cherokee, where she was. And it was very clear to me and looking at the face of the poor person that was trying to explain this to me and then looking at her, what we had. Um, six months before that, a good friend of mine that I worked with, only 37 years old, had um, gone into AFib for no reason. So I went through that journey with his family. And so I was very educated about what I was looking at. And so two days later, um, after they finally did the CAT scan that I wanted, um, it was clear that she was not going to survive. Her brain had lost the capacity to tell the rest of her body what to do. So um, easy decision to make that we took, took her off of life uh, support. So that was, we're coming up now in two years, right before Christmas, December 21st. So that's how she died, which is quite unusual. Most people hear about opioid deaths and overdose and fentanyl deaths and overdose, but they also, there's some unintended consequences of using these stimulants like uh, methamphetamine and cocaine that it can send your heart into AFib and kill you, and that's yeah. exactly what happened to her. And a Narcan. They gave her Narcan, but that's yeah. irrelevant. I mean, it that does Narcan not does absolutely no no good if whatsoever. It mm -mm. does not do any good. So that that is, um, you know, so she struggled for 15 years. Had she ever overdosed before no, that you never, aware of? Never, ever, 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 never. Because she would have ended up in the hospital. No, mm -hmm. she just was lucky. I mean, you know, she um, did a lot of risky things. There are many times that she could have ended her life 
for very bad decisions. She just got you know lucky, and in this particular um, chance, mm-hmm. unlucky. It's you know when I talk to other people, it's like you're playing Russian roulette. That gun's Absolutely. loaded, and so you, you keep pulling the trigger. At some point in time, that gun's going to go off, and that's exactly what happened to her. Right. And from what I understand with meth, it just amps you up so much that you don't sleep for days at a time methamphetamine is one of these drugs that has a terrible track record of being able to recover so if you're really truly addicted to meth and you're in your 20s there's like a five percent chance that you can achieve recovery because of the way that methamphetamine interacts with your brain it basically burns the nerve endings and so if you want to get high you have to do more and more and more so Meth users find it incredibly difficult to recover. I don't think she was addicted to meth. I think she had used it in the past and just tried it again at the level she used it before, and it was just the wrong Too thing. Her, toler- her tolerance for it was not there. So, I'm so sorry. And I know as a parent, you, you must prepare yourself. You must prepare your heart for what could happen. You do. I mean, um, I've I've told many, many people along the way that, you know, if you know anything about addiction, you've got three outcomes. You're going to recover, you're going to be incarcerated, or you're going to die from the disease because it progresses. And so, yes, intellectually, I have, I understood that and have always understood it. But, you know, nothing prepares you for the shock of getting that knock on the door at 4 a.m., and and seeing that but very quickly um and intellectually um i was not one of these people although there was a massive parade of people in the hospital hoping for a miracle i knew that miracle was not coming that that was not meant to be i'm sure we got connected on linkedin because Mm -hmm. we're both in the addiction and recovery field and i read your series of posts that you wrote that you wrote about laura and they were just so They were so beautiful, they were so touching, but they were raw and real. Well, what I made the commitment to do, I had a really interesting um, experience in the hospital that um, probably was a massive turning point for me. Um, Laura had been in treatment at MAR with a young lady named Allie, and Allie was one of these people that we thought for sure would be dead. She overdosed on heroin four or five times, weighed about 95 pounds, a significant addict. And fortunately for Allie, she um, got sober. She was able to enter law school. In fact, she graduates on December 9th. Oh, my god! But she and her mother, Belinda, had come mm. to the hospital, and Allie looked at me, and she said, um, you and I are in a position of privilege. And so that's hard to kind of get your mind around, right, when, uh, when you've got that going on around you and I said well explain that to me Allie she said you and I have a a, an experience and a story that we need to share with others because nobody has walked this journey and if we do it then we have the potential to really help other people and so um if you read anything on my websites or any of the businesses I'm doing I use that statement quite a bit because um it really, I've had a 15-year education to understand this and, and help. So um, when Laura died, I packed up. I retreated in my house in Florida like the next day, but then made the commitment 
that during the month of January, which would have been her 30th birthday at the end of the month, I was going to write a lesson from Laura every day. And it wasn't looking back and beating myself up over should I, would have, could have, because I'd already made, I had already accepted that, that, you know, what was, was. But it's what did I learn now that I'm not in the middle of the fight and how could I take those lessons and personalize them so that you would pay attention? And so in the lessons, I would show a picture of what she was in her brownie outfit or her school dress or mm-hmm. soccer outfit. And then and then take, take a topic and what what should I have known if I had been more educated when she was seven? Right. What should I have known about the risk of addiction? What should I have, could I have done? Mm-hmm. Um, to monitor and 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 get her help earlier so that was really uh, the point of those lessons and then beyond that I've probably written another 50 60 of them that just take a different point of view I'll I'll hear something and I think okay well how can I apply that to something that you would relate to so that you're paying attention to me right and one thing I've heard is it's never too young to start talking to your kids about drugs and addiction. And so many families, parents just think, "Mm, you know, I just, I don't know how to broach the subject, so I'm just not going to talk about it. That's not the problem. The problem is they don't think it applies to them. There you go. You know, so they think, they see that sweet little kid. Not me. Like, oh my God, that's never going to happen to me, right? But statistically, you know, you go look at any government statistic and I don't care what socioeconomic group you're in, one in 10 children will become addicted before they leave high school. So that's a huge number. So let's take Roswell High School where Mm -hmm. I live, 2,600 and some odd kids. So that would mean 260 of them have already developed the disease or will before they walk out of high school. And that's because, you know, you've got a developing brain, Mm -hmm. you expose it to substances, it creates an overproduction of dopamine it starts to rewire it and then now you're off to the races um addiction is progressive so it may not be so terrible in the very beginning but it gets way worse over time in laura's case it was terrible from the day she started but it's for like other a switch it's like a switch that flips on for her you know so go in a room of you know 20 kids and you're going to see two of them that will develop the disease. And so you have to equate it to diabetes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just no different. Um, Parents don't understand that there are three or four markers for risk Mm -hmm. that they can, they know are there. That's not hard to to point to. Um, They have people in their family that have had the disease. Mm -hmm. So there's that genetic marker. Addiction does not switch on unless you have the gene. Same as type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm. The second thing is um, the, the child has a difficult time in self-regulation. Mm-hmm. They're, they're blowing hot. They're blowing cold. They just cannot seem yeah. to get to the center. Um, a third indicator is they've had persistent adverse childhood experiences. And, you know, people think about that. Oh, they've been beaten or molested and Certainly that's true, but there could be other things. So let's look at Laura again. Um, I remarried. I divorced. I sold a company. I started traveling. She changed her sport. She started high school. I moved to a new house. All those things were were changes that she felt um, difficult. She couldn't adapt to them. And probably the fourth thing that um, 
people don't really pay much attention to, and that's um, learning differences. Mm -hmm. So the kid that has ADHD, that's struggling in school, that's getting picked on and bullied because they can't keep up, huge um, marker and huge Mm -hmm. predictor. So yes, you've got to start talking to, you've got to recognize the warning signs, but you've got to start talking to kids in an age-appropriate way, Mm -hmm. as young as six and seven years old, and lots of ways that you can prep them with knowledge. I mean, they're already in science class, right? So you might as well explain the science behind it and in in a way that they can understand. Such good information. Thank you for sharing that. So now your professional mission has changed from building technology companies to leveraging technology in service to addiction prevention and recovery. Let's talk a little bit more about that because that is, that's truly amazing that you are able to channel your grief, your energy, your expertise, your learning and propel it forward. Let me step back a little bit before we talk about our new um, venture Interact Lifeline. And I want to go back to the mid 2000s when we started a licensed wilderness therapy program in North Carolina called Phoenix Outdoor. And our goal was to do two things. One, to um, focus on substance abuse and addiction because 85% of the kids um, coming through these programs have that as a problem. But also equally as important. So let me stop. So uh-huh. from your experience in dealing with your daughter, then you yes, you, you founded yes. this I, program. I, I, felt, I felt like that was a flaw in the way treatment was being managed so the flaw was twofold Mm -hmm. one people did not recognize um substance abuse and addiction they weren't they weren't um gearing their therapy Mm -hmm. to that that was my daughter's experience and the second thing was they were not offering any help and support to parents Mm -hmm. and a lot of that is because um people come from all over the country to attend these programs so how do you do that well um, I was a technologist back then, so it's like, okay, well, this is really easy and obvious to me. We're going to create this very robust parent support program. So in any given uh, week, our parents came to a virtual support group. They had a psychoeducational class online. They had a telehealth session with an, a family therapist, a telehealth session with the child's therapist, mm-hmm. and we asked them to go to Al-Anon if, um, if that was the diagnosis. And so um, what, what we did, and the, the end result is we took their anxiety and the, all that emotion that they were feeling, and we got them back to more even so that they could make an appropriate decision on behalf of their child Mm -hmm. about what happened when our treatment program was over. So I bring that in the context of Interact Lifeline because I've actually gone through the process of being a treatment provider. And so now fast forward to today, Mm -hmm. um, I've owned a technology company for the last six and a half years. We create um, content and education networks for businesses. So if you buy insurance from an independent insurance agency, they may be getting information about what policies to offer, et cetera, through our portal network. That's what we do. And so um, I had really intended to stay on the prevention side, and Mm -hmm. I brought up a portal for that. It's still up there. But then I started thinking about the opioid crisis and people that were really in dire trouble 
and I started looking at, well, why do we have this 85% relapse rate? What's, yes. what's the research telling us? And there were several things that popped out. Thing number one was um, they addiction was being looked at as an acute, not a chronic disease, so they weren't getting enough treatment, right? The second thing was um, being connected to a good support community, which is what AA and NA does, yes. was very critical. But oftentimes, um, going to these live meetings had some downside consequences. And so um, a lot of the patients weren't doing that. They weren't doing it consistently for a lot why, of reasons. Why do you say that? Um, shame, um, uh, embarrassment. Uh, lack of transportation. I mean, there's like, I can give you 18 mm-hmm. obstacles that may may be difficult for them. Mm-hmm. And it's not designed to be an idea exchange. It's designed to listen to a story and then make connections after the meeting's over with. Mm-hmm. So they weren't, they weren't, so connection to community was critical. And then having family support understanding and education so that families knew what to do and what not to do to support someone in recovery Mm -hmm. so we looked at all those things and we said okay can technology um make a difference in any of those areas and so um we said well sure you know i've got this technology it's built out what can i do and we decided we would partner with treatment programs so that these treatment programs could extend care um, past the time that you got discharged. So as an example, you check into Ridgeview, you're there for 45 days, um, the patient has developed a very trusted relationship mm-hmm. with those therapists and recovery coaches, but then then you're discharged and then boom, you're gone. So what if Ridgeview could leverage this technology to use some automation to keep those clients connected to the program? Now, research will tell you if you stay connected to your rehab for six consecutive months after treatment, Mm -hmm. your relapse rate drops a ton. So we decided how could we partner and offer a turnkey program to these companies, these treatment centers to help them facilitate an aftercare program. I'd already used mm. technology to do family support. So if I do nothing more than repeat what I did at Phoenix Outdoor, sure. um, it's, it's a game changer. Um, it, it certainly changed the game in that industry. All the programs out there converted to our model, which was really gratifying. And then I sold the company. Um, so, yes, I could do that. Um, then I'd already been serving um, Kennesaw State University's collegiate recovery program. I hear amazing things. That they about are well. That. They're they're the um, they're the standard in the marketplace. There's 170 of these communities across the country, but they're Teresa Johnston and her team were really the ones that that started it all, and they they run the most sophisticated program out there. So we went to Teresa, who joined our board of advisors, and oh, said, "Hey, nice. um, we want to do a whole." National Program for Collegiate Recovery. Mm. So we brought up six portals um, with different colleges, guided by her hand, and we looked at the results that they were having with their kids, much higher graduation rate, much higher GPA, extremely low recidivism rate, returning to drug use. So can I just pause you for a minute so I can understand exactly 
how this works. So is it, is the user, the student, the college students? Yes. They're the ones who are accessing the program. Right. So here's, here's how the program works. I maintain a centralized content education library. Mm-hmm. I bring up portals for these colleges and I brand them and I make mm-hmm. them look just like, you know, the owls of Kennesaw, mm-hmm. the tide of Alabama. You know, so they look at uh, mm-hmm. they look exactly uh, the Rams in recovery and at uh, oh, cool. VCU. Um, but those portals are connected to my content library, so they get a continuous feed of uh, education that we have curated from around the country that that fuels those portals, mm-hmm. and so they don't have to worry about providing education or content for their kids or their parents or even the community. I do that for them. And then it automates all of their processes. So Mm -hmm. um, it organizes their events. It organizes outreach and emails to their students and to their parents. It's got discussion forums. So it's got all of this automation that frees up their staff time so they can work more closely and serve more kids. So that's the goal. And uh, we've been piloting this with these six universities um, for the fall with really, really great results. So our goal is to expand that nationwide come Q1 next year and Mm -hmm. deliver it to as many collegiate recovery programs as are out there, plus ones that don't know that they need it yet, like LSU. (laughs) Uh, not naming names not naming names but louisiana state university come on (laughs) no but i mean our goal is to we have a we have a family in our community that lost a son to hazing yes 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 i remember that absolutely but the point is that you know you think about the number of kids that are binge drinking using drugs um in colleges in colleges it is everywhere so it's not not only does it help kids in recovery which is Mm -hmm. their primary mission but it's also an intervention service that parents can rely on to really understand when their kids super in trouble and to take some steps to you know not let those tragedies happen right so if in, in an instance like that where they haven't been diagnosed with an addiction they think oh I might be having a problem, so they can go to that portal and, they can. and kind but, of begin. Well, they can start their education. So, in other words, we're, you know, we're curating content, meaning we're eliminating the content that's aggressively trying to get you to enroll in a treatment program right. or is too old or philosophically not lined up with good practices because you google addiction and what comes up it's all treatment programs programs. you can't you can't get to any information right and we're not ready for that yet so you know so the parent whose kids and you you might not be they might not be ready for years well well, they may never be ready for it but then the question is what do you do when is it time to really intervene and pull them out get them help um, understand the social services that the college has or the collegiate recovery community what do you do next mm-hmm. and so think about it as football it's a playbook you know I'm going to learn about it I'm going to understand what it is and then I'm going to have a playbook about what do I do how do I how do I help myself and my kid so amazing that you have this experience that was like ready to go with I mean you're talking about portals like yeah I created a portal here well I mean it's- you know here's here's the way I look at look at the world um you know we don't get to pick and choose what life throws at us or what god gives us and 
you know, I have the um, blessing of being able to have the insight of what I was being prepared for. Mm-hmm. So these 15 years were my education. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, had I not gone through the struggles, I wouldn't have the understanding, the empathy. I couldn't put myself in that parent's shoes mm-hmm. to really understand what they were going through. Now I can do that. And so, um, and, and, you know, what what was my technology career preparing me for, right? It's just being able to stand back, look at it logically and say, all right, what process do I want to change? I want uh, treatment programs to treat this as a chronic disease. I want them to use automation. I want them to communicate with their young people like the young people like to be communicated with. Short burst, quick informational, text-oriented, smartphone stuff. And then um, and then take other technology that I'm not as familiar with, but I'm getting familiar with it all day long, which is um, these Fitbits, Apple Watches, and Garmin's that you're wearing that are collecting your health information. Now what can I do with that? Well, Let's take Laura. So let's assume that Laura had a Garmin watch on, and we know that she's compromised, and that data is streaming to us all along, and we see the blood oxygen and heart rate go off the charts. We just assume she's overdosing, and we send help immediately. And you have a geo tracker yep. that can take we know where she is. Yep, your... we know where she is, Gosh. and we don't have to depend on the you know person that was with her to make a good decision. Um, it's a flaw in our Good Samaritan law. Yeah. You know, he's never going to get prosecuted, but if he intentionally waits too long, that's a little bit of a flaw in the in the 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 whole thing. So, was that intentional? Maybe. You know, somebody ought to take a look at that. But point is, mm-hmm. you know, um, aside from working with colleges and treatment programs, we're going to be launching um, a program called Safety Net which mm-hmm. is, all right, I'm going to wire you up, I'm going to monitor you, I'm going to geolocate you, get you to your appointments, have you check in, monitor your stress level, your sleep level, uh, where you are, and your heart rate and blood oxygen so that parents can breathe. I know where they are. Uh, you know, it's, it's communicating their information all along. And then give them the education that they need to explain all this to themselves, their family, and their kids so that we can just use technology for what technology is meant for. Widespread use and automation. Wow. So is that available now? No. That's in the works. No, we're we're having to modify our portal technology to add the texting element. And because I have your personal health information in it now, I have to be compliant with HIPAA. Oh, yeah. And we know what we have to do to make. Mm -hmm. And so that's in process today. We have a... um, a discussion with one of the three national providers that I mentioned that wants to be our provider of choice of these wearables. And so we need an education on how to extract their data using their API, get it into our technology and interpret it for our purposes. And it's not as hard as it seems. I know it seems like <laughs> yeah, that. Right. It's not as that's hard. Amazing. It's not as hard as it seems, but that's the one element that I have to get right. Absolutely. I can I can get my education can be off. I can do the, you right. know I can have a bad conference call, but I cannot have a bad outcome. So I have to understand you know do I run a call center? What's the range of your heart and your blood oxygen? Mm-hmm. Do I give you a tamper proof wearable? You can't cut off. What do I do? So it's a matter of looking at what those options are and making decisions about what do I want to do with it. 
So, for example, this discussion that we're having with one of the big wearable companies, I did not realize that their little smartwatch that's really cool monitors your stress level. What? It's got some algorithm in it that knows, you know, Mm. it gives you a stress score. Okay, well, that might be important to a recovery coach or to a mom and dad or your sleep or your sleep patterns. It monitors that. Well, you know, if you're staying up right and left at night, you're anxious, et cetera. That's another data point that I could take and interpret it in a different way. You know, you're wearing a Fitbit, a Garmin or an Apple, you care about the steps that you're taking mm-hmm. and your in your physical, like am I gonna lose weight or whatever, I care, am I gonna keep you alive? And so I have to just be very cautious about how we do that. So I know you've heard the quote, the opposite of addiction is recovery. Connection. Oh, it's connection. <laughs> and recovery. And recovery. But it's but it's true, mm. you know, when when someone is struggling, off often they are isolating. True. And they're alone. And to bring in technology in this way, I think is just so exciting. And I'm just so thankful to that you that you're spearheading this and really excited to see where it goes. Well, let's give people the opportunity to make connections virtually because they are already wired in. I mean, we can we yeah. can bitch and moan all day long about mm-hmm. they spend too much time on their electronics or Facebook. We can fight that. It's not going away. Why don't we just um, use what they use to get get connected to them Mm -hmm. you know so um if you don't like going face to face and you're worried about who you're going to see in a meeting then i'm cool with you doing it virtually that works for me if you are live in a rural area and there's not a therapist available for you a telehealth connection also works Mm -hmm. um i can tell you right now that mom and dad um any mom and dad we treated they prefer the anonymity of a virtual mm-hmm. discussion because they are business people, they're members of the community, and they've not gotten to the point right. where they're comfortable letting mm-hmm. you know who they are. Yeah. So that's a, a big thing for us. Well, it's a safe place to go. Right. I think a lot of people, especially parents, they just, they don't know. They don't know where to even begin. So to have something so easily accessible right. that's, that's vetted, that's there when they are ready, I think it's just tremendous. Well, I think we've got to give them a playbook. And we haven't, we've done it, and it's all over our content education, but it's not concise enough. Like, okay, let's take an online assessment. How, how bad is this? Well, why don't you answer some questions for me? I'm going to give you a risk score, and then I'm going to direct you to a segment of that portal that says, okay, you scored pretty high. Mm-hmm. Let's look at the things that you can do. Have you drug tested your kid? Do you really know? Have you talked to their school? Have you put spyware on their computer? Have you restricted their activity? So ask yourself a series of questions, and then start there, and then, then progress to the next thing. Now that I've like buttoned it down a little bit. The boat's not leaking as bad as it was. Now right. what do I do? I'd be interested in getting your thoughts on vaping. Horrible thing. Yeah. Totally opposed. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, like there's no question. Um, people are buying the vaping um, products off the street. They could be laced with just about anything. Um, they are um, creating a, an addiction to other things. Um, so I think anybody that thinks that that's a panacea to get you off of cigarettes needs to rethink that. They shouldn't be doing it. Right. So Jewel and all these other ones that you need to go out of business, it's not a good idea. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I thought you'd probably say that. Yeah. 
Well, I have a whole entire content catalog devoted to vaping and the dangers of vaping. And I've got a massive amount of good new content from the CDC and everybody else that says, look, here's why it's bad. Here's what's happening in your body. Let's go back to the science. Mm -hmm. What's it doing to you? And you wouldn't do it. Yeah. Uh, Have you had a chance to connect with the RCOs, the Recovery Community Organization? I have not. So that would be a real good group for you to get connected with. Absolutely. So, um, and, and Bill from The Connection will be there tonight. That's an RCO in Forsyth. Awesome. And um, I think this is, this is right in their wheelhouse with what they do in providing a place for people in recovery to come together in community, to attend a meeting, to do sober social activities. Right free peer coaching. So I think this, this would be, well, that may be similar to what um, Missy Owen's doing in Marietta. So, yeah. So, so I haven't used, heard that acronym, but the Davis Direction Foundation is exactly that. It is the gold standard. And she's doing great. She's doing great. I asked, I had lunch with her not that long ago and um, asked her about how did you get such a rocket start so quickly with funding and all the support that she has. What I didn't know about Missy is she used to be a school counselor in Hmm. Marietta. So I think she was in four different schools. So everybody in the community knew her. And when her son died, um, everybody was shocked because to them, it's like, oh my gosh, here's Missy's kid, great kid, um, would have never expected it. So that galvanized the community to try and help her. Um, What I love about her program is that it makes a lot of financial sense. She's got ways to self-fund through her Mm -hmm. um, zone Mm -hmm. um, thrift store. She's got uh, multidisciplinary um, things that people can do, music room, career, coffee shop, um, coaching, counseling. Mm -hmm. So she really has got it figured out. But I think a lot of that has to do with her counseling background. She came to the table with a good understanding of you know what the power of counseling and and how to do a good job and our hope for missy is that she takes that model and uh empowers people to replicate it i'd like to give missy some technology to do that and she knows that she's amazing as a mother of someone who lost a child to overdose what would you say to that person who still may be using um my goodness you know, you are really, really playing with fire, and there's never been a more dangerous time than today to use at all. Drugs that you're using are laced with fentanyl. Um, a very small amount of it can kill you. You just never know when it's going to be you that happen, that happens to. And everybody needs to understand that addiction does not get better if it's left untreated. It's a progressive disease. It only gets worse. Um, in Laura's case, it got worse. You know, she got more dysregulated, more incapable of helping herself. Her father, um, my first husband, was a profound alcoholic. Um, when I met and married him, he was full-ride scholarship to UGA. Um, I don't know if he was valedictorian of his class, but he was right up there. Super smart guy, good-looking. He uh, could not and would not treat his addiction And ultimately, in his 50s, he looks like he was 85 years old um, and shot and killed himself because the effects of the disease were so overwhelmingly negative. So if you're using, you've got to find a way to, to, um, to get treated so that you can slow and stop the progression of the disease. It will, you know, you may die from, not from an overdose, but from 
the effects of it on your body uh, in other areas, liver disease, heart disease. You know, it, it Laura could very easily not have taken a fatal overdose, but her heart might have been compromised in other ways that we didn't understand. So sure. you've got to stop. Sure. And if somebody needs help and they're ready for help, what is step one? Well, I think step one is to look at the people around you that support you and talk to them. You know, so if you're not estranged from your family, talk to your family, let them know that you want help, talk to other people, let them know, because oftentimes if you need help, you're probably not in the best decision-making position to go figure out how to do this by yourself. So don't try and go it alone. You know, go, go out to the community you're connected to, get advice, help, support, guidance, and then, um, and then go from there. Um, you know, your choices are kind of dictated about what you can afford, you know, so if you have insurance, if you're working, then you need to see what kind of benefits your insurance company will pay for. If not, there are plenty of no cost or low cost Medicaid oriented programs. Um, They may not be as shishi or as, as interesting, but some of them are really, really good at what they do. And so there's usually an option for just about anybody that wants treatment. Right. And some people don't need to go to treatment. They are able to do it through AA or Celebrate Recovery or, right. or HA. It's just important to start somewhere. Exactly. And if you're going to do that on your own, my biggest advice is not to do is to, t- for, with one exception, if you need detox, mm-hmm. you know, um, you've got a, a, when you're in detox, that is a really dangerous situation, mm-hmm. especially if you're an alcoholic. So if you can get detox safely, um, under somebody's supervision, whether you check yourself in or somebody medically supervises you, you should go there. But then right beyond that, there's um, a lot of education that you can empower yourself to figure out a pathway to, you know, what does it take to be in recovery? How do you treat the disease? What does the disease mean? What do you have to do um, in your diet, your exercise, um, treating your anxiety, whatever those things are? Um Maybe you don't have the capacity to check in, but you sure can get connected to the internet and let us help you figure out all that out. Yeah, definitely. So, Laura, we're sitting with us here today. What do you think she'd be saying about her mom? She would be horrified that I'm telling all of her deep, dark secrets. That was always a big thing for her. She, you know, she, um, she, Sometimes she would be perfectly willing to share, but other times it's like, don't tell anybody that this and this is going on. So I think she might be horrified that I was doing it, but at the same time, I think she would be um, um, ecstatic to be a partner with me. I mean, I think, Mm. you know, I would have loved to have done this with her. Um, I'm still doing it with her. It's just different. But um, I think she would have jumped on board. she would have been like Allie in some respects. Allie, her friend, got over the stigma of um, sharing her story, and so she's very public about it. And my hope is Laura would have done the same thing because she had a lot to teach, a lot to teach. But, you know, fortunately, she taught it to me, and I'm a really good communicator, so I'm taking those lessons and, and um, using her education of me to, to do what I'm doing. That's so interesting. And so, so 
So brave. I don't know that it's brave. People use that word. I just think that it's, I feel very calm and confident about it. I don't know that it's courageous. It's just, it has to be done and somebody might as well do it. So um, I've got the gifts to be able to do it. So not bravery, it's just logic. No, it's bravery. (laughs) (laughs) It's bravery. So the word relevate, it's a real word that means to uplift Mm -hmm. or inspire. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know this is a very difficult topic for a lot of people to hear. Um, but in light of that, where where is the hope in our discussion and the work that you're doing? Well, thing number one is addiction is treatable. Yes. It's a disease that's treatable. So as long as we know what it is, we know that you have it, we know how to treat it, right? right. And there are plenty of people that sustain long-term recovery and lead very healthy lives if they treat it correctly. So it's not like you're getting a pancreatic cancer diagnosis. Yeah. You're, getting, um, you're getting a diagnosis of something that you can manage and you can treat and you, have con- you can gain control over it. So I think the hope is there. I think um, we've got to stop looking at the opioid crisis as such an overwhelmingly devastating and complex problem that we can't deal with it. It's like eating an elephant. You eat it one bite at a time. And so this is just a bite. You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm eating, uh, you know, a bite over here. Other people are eating a bite over there. And before you know it, that elephant's going to get eaten, and we'll move on past that crisis, and we'll have addressed the reasons behind it. I mean, just look at the pharmaceutical companies as an example. They're pumping a bunch of money into the market. They're rehabbing their image. They're retraining doctors about what they, they're untraining them about what they trained them to do incorrectly. Yeah. We're looking at lots of different ways to manage pain so that we mm-hmm. don't prescribe. We're getting a lot smarter. And so, you know, it's a movement. Um, think about mothers against drunk driving. Oh, yes. Nobody thought about jumping in the car with a beer or what, whatever. They just did it, right? And mothers against drunk driving changed our entire paradigm of how we think they about sure this. Did. So we need to do the same thing. This, is, this needs to be a movement. And maybe it starts with mothers who are tired of having to do the heavy lifting and watch their children suffer. And so I'm very hopeful that we'll make a big impact, not just us, but a lot of good things are happening in in the way that we're dealing with it. Awesome. So tell me the name of your company again and how people can connect to learn more about sure. it. So the company is called Interact Lifeline. And our website is exactly the company's name, interactlifeline.com. In it, you will be able to see what we're doing in collegiate recovery, so you can learn about that. You can learn about what we're going to do in the treatment world, um, read about that. Um, You'll learn about our safety net um, program that we want to launch next year. Um, And we're looking for support. Um, We created a a nonprofit called Interact Cares, and so if you want to donate to the nonprofit, we will take those donations and use them to defray the cost of technology to civic organizations, nonprofits, 
um, or collegiate programs that can't afford it. So um, that's, that's one way you can be supportive. We're raising a round of investment. It's kind of a narrow scope of who can do that. Um, you have to be qualified um, based on the standards of qualification, but we already have a lot of interest in it because we're a healthcare IT technology company. That's a hot property these days, and there's not that many of us in mental health, so we think we can be very disruptive to that industry and refer people to us. I mean, if you know of an organization that could use our help that we should partner with that can lend their expertise, we're happy to have any of those conversations. And on the website, you'll be able to see those links and how to touch base with us. Okay, that sounds great. I will also include that on the episode notes of the podcast. Thank you. So anything else you would like to share? Um, No, I just feel... um, I feel grateful that I've had a chance to spend this time. Um, Hopefully people will get information out of it. They'll find useful. And certainly if you go to the portals that we have, you can start your educational process and really understand, you know, um, what it takes to be well and to live a healthy life. And um, that's my hope for everybody out there. Well, I am inspired by Laura. She, uh, so beautiful, forever 29 and forever in our hearts. And we lift her up and celebrate her and um, her mom for the amazing work that you're doing in this space. Thank you so much for Thank being you. here. My heart truly goes out to the families with children who struggle with addiction. As a society, we need to be leaning in and loving on these families because like Carolyn said, The trauma felt by the family is akin to being in war. The stigma of addiction is still very real and can only begin to get better when we have difficult discussions like this. And in so doing, we become empowered and more knowledgeable. Also takes people like Carolyn Bradfield and Missy Owen and organizations like The Connection, all mentioned in this episode, who rise up in the wake of tragedy and unthinkable loss, somehow finding a way to channel some of the grief into action, helping the next wave of families and daughters and sons impacted by addiction. Thank you for listening, sharing, and subscribing to the Relevate podcast. Together, we are stronger when we unite and agree to dialogue on these difficult issues. We are losing far too many of our loved ones to addiction, overdose deaths, and other mental health issues. I'm not okay with that, and I know you're not. Who do you know that needs a lifeline and needs to hear this conversation? Please share this episode and be there for that family or person. Take heart in knowing recovery is possible and people do get better. I'm Rena Olson, and this is is relevant.